Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, there was a lot of good feeling recently in the last week about baseball being back, lockout over, spring training returning. We saw Major League Baseball players in uniform on baseball fields. Yeah, I didn't recognize any of my guys personally. Well, you probably did recognize them on different teams wearing different uniforms. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yes, you're right. It was it was a little surreal, like getting lineup notifications. I know. MLB home run notifications. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but despite all of that joy, our old friend, old, one of our oldest friends on the podcast, Alex, he found something very tried and true to complain about. This friend that I'm talking about is, of course, Phil Mushnick. Did you see this? Going no. around, making the rounds on Twitter? No. I think we just have to do a bad take dramatic reading. I saw this oh, yes. I saw this New York Post article from the original bad take dramatic reading artist himself, mm-hmm. Phil Mushnick, for those who have been listening for four years now. Right. This is real tipping heads. That's what we're calling them. Mm-hmm. New York teams make effort to find players who make no effort. That's the headline. Amazing. (laughs) Alex, clues generally come in two sizes. Small and those that are dead giveaways. (laughs) Wait, So so large, they can be seen from out of space. Clues. Outer space. Clues. Yes. Clues come in two sizes. Okay. Just to review. Small and those that are dead giveaways. Those are the two sizes. We're now into the second paragraph. Mm -hmm. Steal yourself. During World War II. (laughs) I saw someone underneath it be like, I tapped out after I saw the phrase World War II. That's like the 15th word in the article. During World War II, Joseph Stalin's spy masters established a front in Brussels. They named the Foreign Excellent Trench Coat Company. After all, what self-respecting spy could operate without a trench coat. Just a reminder, this is an article about baseball. It has big, like, I I read a Wikipedia article last night and kind of just want to incorporate it. Yeah. Energy. Yet for some reason, perhaps the inability to provide trench coats, the foreign excellent trench coat factory was a bust. And that naturally, naturally, <laughs> brings us to Gotham's professional team's and the inability of its managements, we really need a copy pass on this, like really badly, to see what's coming, comma, then wait too long to seek a remedy. What is this about? Wait, I'm sorry. Like, I, you're going to see what it's about in just a moment. Okay. It's Phil Mushnick. Right, what do, you, what do you think it's about? I know. In sustaining the counterproductive presence of Gary Sanchez. Yes. <laughs> yes. They finally traded him away, and Phil had to send him off the right way. Right. He was like, I got to turn out all the, all the takes I can. And paying him more for his presence, it certainly seems the Yankees were the last to know that he was more doorstop than backstop. He was MLB's highest salaried 
listless retriever of past balls. Man has the thesaurus.com just open at all times as he's writing this. Now he's now he's sharing a message from his reader, reader Joe Nugent, quote, poor Sonny Gray traded to the twins the same day they get Sanchez to catch him again. That Sanchez conspicuously resisted all attempts, including private tutoring, to become even a minimally efficient catcher who ran the bases with even a minimal degree of enthusiasm and situational awareness and batted with the goal to hit the ball rather than strike out, only seemed to escape Aaron Boone, Brian Cashman, and Yes's broadcasting teams. Drive-by shootout for Yes Network. Please don't disrespect my friend Ryan Rucco. But such is life in the big city. And now... We move on to the part where he talks about the crosstown Dominican player, Robinson Cano. (laughs) Robinson Cano is back to play somewhat for the Mets after his second PED suspension. As a Yankee, it was clear that Cano was a minimalist, that the fundamental winning baseball act of running to first was beneath him. This is Robinson Cano, right? We're talking about the universally beloved Yankee who is one of their greatest players ever especially if he spends his whole career there yep okay that same robinson cano as an aging m dash who isn't m dash met his disinclination to reach first base in even a moderately quick fashion was excused explained and rationalized by the pandering as a veteran quote trying to save his legs saving them for what he's a professional ball player (laughs) He has not been on the Yankees for years. I know. Anytime you have a long history of columns that you can just reprint and change the team name. Right. Instead of actually doing your job, you just have to do it. Anytime you can get from Joseph Stalin to Robinson Cano in like four paragraphs. It's actually kind of impressive. It kind of is. is. Is there more to this article? I'm like, I'm still kind of missing the thesis here. Right. Like I... There was something about trench coats up top, and and then there was casual racism in the middle. Yeah, and like, what are we what are we building towards? You know, it's it's like this is taking back to the casual racism. high school freshman English class days. Yeah, like thesis statement, topic sentence, topic sentence, topic sentence. Right, exactly the classic yeah. like five paragraph. Yeah, the. The casual racism is a feature, not a book. Right. (laughs) It's like the whole thing, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's where we get back to the thesis of the whole article and the headline. Okay. I'm I'm waiting for this. Well, you'll recall the headline was New York teams make effort to find players who make no effort. Mm -hmm. So the whole article is a list of all of the players that Phil Mushnick thinks are lazy who Uh have played for New York teams. He then goes on to talk about Le'Veon Bell. Mm. He talks about Ben Simmons, who won't play, who's day-to-day with a back injury. Good. So that's the whole column. Shall I, shall I treat you to the kicker? Please. I, you know, I'm kind of torn on this because on the one hand, it was a really inspiring lead. Like, I, I actually thought there was going to be, like, this is clearly a guy who is at the peak of his craft. And it just kind of feels like he maybe mailed it in a little bit. Like, I know that most of his articles are just like, pick a, a player, pick a non-white player on a New York sports team and spend 500 words critiquing them with convoluted metaphors. Right. But I don't know. I feel like he set things up so nicely up top and and then just kind of lost it. 
Yes, he he goes out of his way to talk about Carmelo Anthony, who hasn't been on the Knicks for like eight years. <laughs> then he talks about Evan Engram, who was a first round pick by the Giants, um, and just recently signed with Jacksonville. And here's the kicker, Alex. But the folks who run teams in Florida can't be expected to be sharper than those who run teams in New York City. Besides, let some other town be the last to know, because Evan Engram signed with. The Jacksonville Jaguars. Right. Need a trench coat? Out. <laughs> wow. Mic drop. Um, I just thought you might appreciate that. I didn't know that I needed that yeah. in my life. You had a rough night last night, and I now did. this is bringing you back to life. I was at a, a, a bar that was doing some karaoke, and while, yes, I could have gotten up there and, and sang a Taylor Swift song or... Yeah, you got up there and sang Hope You're Okay by Olivia Rodrigo. Right, exactly. That's the one from that album that you love the most. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I really should have gotten up there with this and done kind of like a like slam poetry. Yeah, the modern beatniks. Phil right. Mushnick. Right. <laughs> Joseph Stalin, man. We should work Joseph Stalin references into more podcasts. It, it would not actually be that hard for us to do. I don't even think it would be that far off topic most of the right, time. Right, exactly. Yeah. Let's work on that. Um, we got a ton of news this past week. Um, we got some big and positive news in minor league baseball, which we're going to talk about. And then we're going to finish the podcast by doing a bunch of mailbag questions. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Okay, baseball is back. The hot stove is hot again, Alex. A bunch of signings in this past week. Obviously, people don't come to Tipping Pitches to hear about transaction analysis. Which is why we're going to spend 20 minutes on it. No, I don't think that we need to do transaction analysis. But I did kind of want to ask you what it felt like to see the free agent carousel again. We got some really big names changing teams. Yeah. Um, Trevor Story is now a Red Sox for six years, $140 million. Carlos Correa is a member of the Minnesota Twins. Big market, big bad mm-hmm. Minnesota Twins that the Yankees can't possibly outspend and attract Carlos Correa away from. Three years, $105 million with an opt-out after each year. Um, so obviously a high average annual value there. But I uh, think a much shorter contract and a lot of people were expecting Carlos Correa to sign given that you know most 27 year old middle infield superstars tend to opt for the long contract like Francisco Lindor Freddie Freeman will be wearing Dodger blue for six years 162 million dollars super weird that's like a real MLB the show vibe when you're like five years into a franchise mode or a road to the show yeah and all of a sudden like franchise icons are playing for other teams and you're just like sure that would never happen in real life well it happened and speaking of franchise icons playing for other teams a flip-flop of that is kenley jansen is now on the atlanta braves for one year 16 million dollars there was obviously a bunch of other stuff the medals and extension um the groundbreaking hansel robles back to the red sox move mm-hmm. that really puts them as world series favorites in my mind nick castellanos to the phillies for five years 100 million kyle schwarber to the phillies they just don't think that they have to make any outs in the outfield there but that's okay right um that's what the universal dh is for <laughs> yeah the, you just get to put as many fielders out there as well. universal 
the Phillies heard Universal DH and they were like, we get to have nine DH spots? Right, exactly. <laughs> Sweet. Um, as all of this news was breaking, were you like, oh yeah, baseball's back, baby. Were you, were you eating it up? Because I'll say for myself, I found it kind of disorienting. I think I need like a couple weeks and the regular season to start before I really start to conceive of any of these teams as real collects, you know, collections of players ever again. Yeah, I'm still not not in a place where I'm thinking about the idea of of baseball teams. Yeah, playing baseball like Sonny Gray being on the Minnesota Twins. Yeah, I'm like, I guess. I mean, that's groundbreaking analysis here. You know, <laughs> it's actually Kenley Jansen to the Braves is like the weird one for me. Freddie Freeman under the Dodgers, I I totally see. I mean, it's weird. But I get it because it's the it's the Dodgers, right? I mean, yeah. you would never think uh, Trey Turner on the Dodgers, but I feel like Kenley is such a beloved hometown player and has obviously dealt with um, both on and off field struggles, health issues, etc. I don't know. I feel like you never really think about those types of players who maybe not like franchise players, but yeah. The, the ones you can kind of kind of count on especially closers too because mm-hmm. they they have like such a similar rhythm to every game they're always coming in i think of kenley like the excitement that it brought to the dodgers crowd when they would play his intro music which is california love by tupac and right what is it gonna be now i don't know i i wonder if he would just keep the same song like mm-hmm. if after you've been closing games for so long to switch that up seems like a um too big of a risk right but you're right nothing can com- nothing can prepare you for the thought of seeing a player who you otherwise love putting on an Atlanta Braves jersey although i guess you had to prepare yourself for that last week when they traded medals into the Braves um and Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays and Chris Bassett to the Mets well you're used to seeing incredible third baseman get traded to the Blue Jays <laughs> it's not the first time that that happened tough scene Mookie Betts Trey Turner Freddie Freeman I know I'm just reading the Dodgers lineup now but should we just keep, why stop there Max Muncie Justin Turner Will Smith like it's unbelievable yeah they are unbelievable I feel like this is this is real uh, throwback vibes you know like first few episodes of this podcast vibes where we're just kind of like man crazy how many baseball players there are (laughs) and how many of them are really good at what they do yeah yeah uh let's spin it forward to a more modern version of tipping pitches and talk about the A's and the reds completely tanking for unknown reasons Mm -hmm. although we kind of know the reasons um the second the cba was inked the second the lockout was lifted the first thing that the Reds and the Oakland Athletics thought to do was like, thanks for sticking with us, fans. Thanks for getting excited about the lockout ending and the season coming back, 162 games. Now we're going to trade every player. So it looks like um, those anti-tanking measures from the collective bargaining agreement, how, how, they, how are they doing? How are they holding up so far? 12 days into the CBA. <laughs> Right. We knew this was coming 
or at least I knew it was coming on behalf of the A's. I think maybe the Reds are the one that was a little more surprising, maybe less so given what we know about Bob. I seriously, we have mentioned the name Bob Castellini on this podcast so many times. Yeah. I, I genuinely did not think about him. I feel like we need intro music for him. Right. Like at this point, we've talked about him so many times that. Right. By God, someone, is that Bob's music? <laughs> someone needs to write us like a little jingle talking talking about his wholesale produce. Right. Get some carrot mentions in, maybe some Brussels sprouts, you know, maybe romaine. We love this bit. It's such a good bit. Um, I will say, what is the bit, by the way? There's no joke in there, really. The bit is just talking about how he sells fruits and vegetables. Right. Like a, like a genuinely kind of generic business i think maybe our it's our disbelief that you can become get, rich get enough so wealthy yeah from that but i guess stranger things have happened that's just supply chain economics right there mm-hmm. supermarket needs carrots <laughs> and someone's got to get them the carrots you know i hope the listeners enjoy this content if somebody writes us a jingle i can't think of a good way to pay them back but you know the future patreon which we will someday launch at some mm-hmm. point for some amount of money to provide some level of content that is more than just this free podcast. That person will have a free access pass to the Patreon for life. That's right. Um, okay, back to Bob Castellini. By God. <laughs> Someone honked outside, right? <laughs> it's like they heard us. Let's go. I actually, I can't speak too much to, to Bob and his current financial situation. I will say I was on John Fisher's Forbes page. Ooh, real and- time. What's the real time looking like? Well, the real time is is two point five billion. Um, mm. Dang, I I will say it looks like he from from April of last year to October of last year he went from three point one to two point nine. Ouch! Which I think probably explains the the slashing and burning of the A's of the A's. Right? That's right. why they're going to run out a thirty million dollar payroll this year. Does Does it's Forbes it. know about the ROI yet? Like, have they have they updated that based on the extension that they don't have to sign Matt Chapman and Matt Olson to? That's true. Like yeah. that could be. You look tomorrow. Well, once the ink is dry on those deals, they raised season ticket prices. One of our listeners, Mike, DM'd me to point out they also raised the price of hats. Ooh, I don't know. It feels like they're they're almost running out of ways to alienate their fans. They're like, what else can we can we do? disassembled hot dogs you know <laughs> like yeah i feel like hats are a pretty standard price right you know anytime you you can't raise prices while trading all of your best players you just kind of have to do it. it feels like is capitalism having a moment again like is it bouncing back and all of this pro-union sentiment all of these the young leftist wave the a's are just like nah you guys are still going to come to the games, right? Like you, right. you're still going to. When we build that still new stadium, give, give us that money. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna come on down to Howard Terminal, huh? Here's the thing, and I have never understood this, but I really don't understand the the business case for this, for raising prices, for raising prices, for I mean, for trading players again, not to just be like, why, why not just spend the money to keep them? But yeah, for all the whining about gate receipts and fan attendance and how important that is to owner's bottom line. This feels like that flies directly in the face of that, right? The fact that the Oakland A's are still able to maintain themselves as a profitable franchise while routinely drawing 
10,000 fans? Yeah. 7,000 fans? And, and doing the very things that you think would alienate them. The fact that they still are in existence feels like that is disproving the very theory that you need the fans to be able to make money off the sport. Yeah, to the extent that we actually believe that there is a floor at which you you start becoming unprofitable if you don't, you know, attract some fans to the ballpark for the actual in-person games. If that even is true, the A's are challenging that floor. Like we kind of thought, oh, they might be at it, you know. They sell 5,000 tickets per game on weeknights. There was a there was a lot of discussion about A's stadium turnout last season Mm -hmm. to which you said what the hell guys like why would people turn out they're they're like in a nosedive and most of these guys are not going to be on the team next year and they're also trying to flirt with las vegas in front of everybody's very eyes but yeah i think that the economic reality of baseball right now is that if that floor even exists i don't know that any team has hit it and that's pretty bleak to think about because when you consider the fact that the A's are pulling in just a few thousand, 10,000 on weekends, you consider the fact that the Marlins don't even open half their stadium seating. Right. You consider the fact that the Rays never sell out or whatever, but they still have a great local cable deal and they're still a good team and they still won't find ways to sell fans and get people in the stadium. I don't know how you look at that and think anything other than owners are just going to keep trying to see how far they can dig that right that grave right dig that floor they're very that. clearly saying how far can we go yeah i mean we've seen that in every other aspect of the sport oh i thought you were just going to say life well that too just how far can we go how much will people take yep <laughs> i mean i guess this is the logical conclusion yeah as we sit here towards. as we sit here in like a 9 by 12 room that mm-hmm. i pay thousands of dollars a month for <laughs> Recording this podcast for free. Yeah. What are you going to do? Where else are you going to go? Exactly. But so so here's where I bring the nuance into the conversation, though, when it comes to the A's. Because though this has been happening your whole life, and it's equally as gut-wrenching every time when you, when your favorite players get traded, and obviously, if people listen to this podcast, they know I think that teams should make so much more of a good faith effort to try to keep players around and build around franchise cornerstones because I think that that creates the longest lasting relationships for fans and it creates the most loyal fans. At least with the A's, this is like kind of what, this is not what the fans signed up for, but it's what they know. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a more recent trend in baseball, probably inspired by the A's and inspired by Moneyball, where all of these other teams try to do what the A's do. It's like, oh, we we push, we kind of push in a little bit of a window and then we like sell the team for parts and we wait till we strike it rich with a prospect or strike it rich in the draft a couple years consecutively. But I think that is a total myth. Like I, for what the Reds are doing, I think that that is much more aggressively anti-fan than even what the A's are doing. Yeah. Because the A's are like, this is the deal. You know what's coming. And we're going to get a bunch of really good prospects back because we know exactly when to trade our guys because we've been doing this for two decades. Mm-hmm. Like Olsen and Chapman still both had 
two years of team control. Yeah. And so they got massive returns for both of those guys. Much better than the Reds really got for any of their players that they traded. Yeah. Those were all just salary dumps. But to what end? You know what I mean? Like, I understand the A's end. I don't understand teams like the Reds. Because they made like a halfway push for like a year and a half. Right. Like, why even do that at all? Why not just be the Pirates? Why not just tank all the time then? I don't even understand why you would even lie and try to... Do you think that you created lifelong fans in that 18-month period where you made the the pandemic playoffs and nothing else? Yeah. <laughs> and lost in the first round? Like, right. You, ha- you actually had a year and a half of sheer excitement, not just from Reds fans, but I feel like around the, the sport, like I was getting excited about the Reds. I think you were getting it. You you bought me a Cincinnati Reds hat. I sure did. I I still wear that from time to time. Wow. So embarrassing now. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think it's something to keep track of, too. Especially now in this new CBA. We've already seen teams kind of flout the new anti-tanking measures, so to speak. But we've yet to see if there's going to be any kind of blowback or any kind of gradual realization that it doesn't pay off quite as much as it used to unfortunately i don't think that that's going to happen and that's what we said the night that we sat down to record the cba reaction podcast like these this anti-tanking stuff is kind of eyewash as we say in the baseball world there was no real anti-tanking measures because there's still no incentive to spend money yeah i feel bad i mean i feel bad for you and i feel bad for reds fans and i i there are a whole host of teams that are kind of like spinning in place, which is almost like as a fan, at least you can write that off to be like, it's hard to compete. It's hard to put together a good baseball team. But then the team's actually actively throwing it in reverse. The second that they get the, their, their first chance to just dumping on all of the fans, like renewed hope now that baseball is back like that, that really hurts. And I think that that for all of the like fear mongering, that we saw from the both sides media in the lockout and collective bargaining coverage about how fans were not going to come back if we lost games and fans weren't going to care because it was millionaires versus billionaires. Like where are all of those people now? Where are all of those people getting furious at the reds and the A's? Where's the column that says Moneyball is worse for fan engagement than a lockout. I'm wait. I'm still waiting for that one from all of the people who were like, if we miss one single game, I will, tie myself to the (laughs) I will tie myself to second base at Yankee Stadium in protest it's just funny how we just lose that energy or like we lose the the desire to make that kind of like high minded think PC argument throughout the rest of the baseball calendar yeah I mean we yeah we had we just had months of non-stop discussions about the business of baseball and everyone had an opinion on it now we're back to business, as usual, <laughs> right? It's, well, the one thing that we haven't lost from the last few months is people sharing conspiracy theories about Scott Boris. <laughs> That's very true. But I don't even really want to... I don't think I understand the conspiracy theories as it relates to Carlos Correa's contract well enough to really dispel them on the podcast, <laughs> you know? And I don't think I want to. And I don't think listeners really want me to. No, Scott Boris conspiracy theories... I don't know. Is there an appetite for them? I Maybe. Listeners will just have to call in and let us know. Yeah. I just feel like you can probably come up with more creative ones than Scott Boris is 
what manipulating the market like scott boris is only out to help himself right once again he's an agent right like what like yeah yes he wants to help himself, you, but it also has to help his clients to do that. Otherwise, they won't hire him. What did you think the setup was here? Did you he think sh- he was like a public servant? Right. He's Scott Boris. Like, where have you been for the last two decades? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we are going to answer some of those listener questions. Uh, unfortunately, none of them are about Scott Boris or conspiracy theories. Before we do answer listener questions, we got some news about the minor leagues. Some positive news uh, in that a judge in California awarded preliminary damages before this case even goes to trial about illegal wage practices for minor league teams in California. They determined that minor leaguers are year-round employees who need to be compensated year-round and also need to be compensated for things like travel time. The time that it takes to get to places like Arizona and Florida for spring training, to get to games, that sort of thing. So do you have those details on what the actual damages were rewarded for and you know like what what we can expect as this case progresses this is Aaron Sani versus the Kansas City Royals that has grown to now include effectively thousands of of minor leaguers and it has really kind of bounced around all over the place um it's been bounced up to the supreme court and and back down it has flirted with class action status. Um, and as you mentioned, this is it hasn't gone to trial yet. But there were some, some dueling claims, basically, where Major League Baseball tried to argue, as we have seen them do before, that minor league players are seasonal employees. Yeah. Akin to... Amusement in, park workers. Yeah, right. Interns. <laughs> <laughs> uh and the judge and the judge disagreed with that. He said that uh minor leaguers should be paid for travel time to road games in the California League and to practice in Arizona and Florida. Now this ruling is somewhat limited in scope, right? It doesn't dismantle the notion that minor leaguers are seasonal employees exactly. It is not going to overhaul the payment system. It's limited to California, Arizona, and and Florida. the The damages that players will be awarded for uh, playing in Arizona and Florida are still pending. They still have to be sorted out. But the judge ruled that MLB was not following California's wage statement requirements and awarded close to two million dollars in penalties as a result, which is like huge. It's a it's a huge win for this movement, even though we know that it's long overdue. I thought one of the more interesting parts was that the judge also found that MLB is a joint employer, which means that along with the fact that individual clubs who have minor league teams in California are exposed um, in this lawsuit, that that means that the MLB's central office itself is exposed too, so they could be found guilty, I guess, for violating California wage law because they are considered a joint employer who has jurisdiction over all 30 teams, basically, about setting policy for the 30 teams. And if one of those 30 teams is violating California wage law, then MLB will be found guilty as well. Now, I'm not sure 
what that would mean for where the funds come from to pay these minor leaguers back for the wages that they're owed. But I think this is another thing, you know, like we get asked a lot, does X open the door to unionizing the miners? Mm -hmm. Does this class action lawsuit mean that it's easier to unionize the miners or does the challenge to the antitrust exemption mean that forming a union is easier? And I think the short answer to that question is no, (laughs) not really. But the slightly more nuanced answer to that question is that it sets a tone for what you would eventually talk about when you're talking about unionizing the minor leagues. You can point to your someone who is on board, a minor leaguer who is on board with the union, can talk to his teammate about why he feels this way. And then he can point back to the fact that major league teams are violating California wage law in how they're paying us. And the court system, the federal judges, the public, they're all on our side. So why not unionize? Why not go the extra step and do it? And so all of this stuff is greatly overdue. But it is also the kind of thing that I don't want to say graces the skids for a minor league union, but at least eliminates some speed bumps towards something like that in terms of how you talk about it with other people and how the tone of the labor conditions for these players is conceived of. Yeah, I'm obviously no law professional lawyers that's what law, made, lawyers call them. themselves <laughs> hey uh, nice to meet you i'm alex basley law professional <laughs> i think this precedent is is important as you're saying it it helps shape the dialogue and it feels like one piece of the puzzle that will be important for for lawyers to point back to when making this broader case um as you mentioned it it's it's going to trial in june given the way that this is headed i i think it seems unlikely that it gets that far oh you're 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 going big settlement guy well i mean do you think that mlb especially if it sees the writing on the wall with this yeah they don't want to go to discovery i don't know that they really do (laughs) yeah but uh, both parties have to agree to a settlement you know like well yes if the if the Sen side, Seni, Sen side, I don't, I really apologize for not knowing how to say his name. If the side of the minor leaguers does not want to agree to the settlement and wants to, wants this to play out in full, that's their legal right. Oh, absolutely. Which would be sick. That I'm, I'm all for that. But also I understand if you don't want to wait another eight years. Right. This feels like a similar dynamic to actually what we saw play out in the CBA, right? Where you're kind of balancing, do I want to be a part of this project that dismantles the the, the baseball's financial structure <laughs> weighing that against do i just kind of want to get out you know like and this is dragged on yeah. for a while do i just kind of want to get paid and what i deserve the other thing that i'll say with regards to how this affects minor league unionization is that what you said like legal precedent does matter when it comes to bargaining so it might not actually help them form the union which is the hardest task to accomplish but it it could help them when they're putting proposals back and forth and MLB is saying no we don't want to give you x no 
we can't afford to give you X, et cetera, et cetera. It gives them a legal case to point back to and say, actually, your prior business practices were illegal. And so you can't hold firm to this clause where you're trying to enshrine your prior business practices. Because in California, where a large chunk of minor leaguers play, that actually was illegal and you had to pay damages. Mm-hmm. Creative professionals. That's what that's how MLB would like to describe minor leaguers. They're creative professionals like artists. Do you consider yourself a creative professional? In that I spend a lot of time doing something that I get paid nothing for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the way that you play Grand Theft Auto is creatively professional. <laughs> Not as much as I am a, a law professional. Right, yeah. But the creative side bleeds out every once in a while. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick break and when we come back, listener question. I am so out with you. Okay, we have a ton of good questions. And I apologize to all the people who asked lockout questions that we tried to get to but just ran out of time um we asked people to submit questions that are kind of like baseball is back what do we want to think about (laughs) um so we're going to start with a couple of the submissions from twitter and then we'll do a couple voicemails too and then we'll get out of here this first question comes from mike schubert and we're getting to mike's question first former guest of the podcast mike schubert hosts a million great podcasts about many different things Mike gets to ask the first question because he bought us pizza this past week. If you buy us pizza, you get to ask the first question. <laughs> that's, that's a new policy. I'm always saying this. Uh, Shubes wants to know what team is going to have the worst jersey patch. And will owners use their other companies to buy jersey patches on their baseball teams? <laughs> yeah, we haven't really talked about this, have we? No. I, I mean, I'm sure people know by now that part of the new collective bargaining agreement is that teams can sell sponsorships on jerseys. They'll be, I believe they'll be on hats, batting helmets, and the jersey itself. So advertising (laughs) stretches just a little further in the game Mm -hmm. of baseball. I actually weirdly don't have a strong opinion about this. I don't either. We've been seeing this phased into various sports for years now. I mean, this has existed in soccer, for example, for eternity. I know it, it... just re- so many Etihad jerseys <laughs> out there in the world. I mean, it is like Rakuten. Right. It does feel like like Little League a little bit, you know, where you yeah. have like the local auto shop on the front of yeah. your jersey. De Lorenzo's Pizza was mine. There you go. <laughs> Only one of the years. I mean, I, I think that there was probably like 15 of them in my time. But De Lorenzo's Pizza was the one that I remember the most. It's just free ad space right now for DiLorenzo's Pizza <laughs> in Frailes Hills, Pennsylvania. Was it worth it? Did you ever have it? I think we got like a pizza party from them at the end of the year, but clearly not memorable enough. It was good. I was more of a VNS pizzeria guy myself. <laughs> there's one person listening to me or most of our listeners. There's one person listening right now from Bucks County, Pennsylvania who's going hard right now. Like, yes, VNS pizzeria. <laughs> I know that person's out there. All that to say, I, I just know we are going to get the, the randomest companies buying out patches, right? You know, we've seen this happen before where I learn about the existence of companies through <laughs> the fact that they are like sponsoring spring training or I something, know. you know? I know. 
Doosan. Right. Doosan. Big Doosan push a couple years big ago. Doosan push. Camping World. Yeah, Camping World. Although, I feel like Camping World was out there. Yeah. And we were just not the target demo right. for them. <laughs> like, I don't feel like they really jumped onto the scene. I think Camping World's probably been around for a bit. I mean, Doosan probably as well. Yeah, true. But I think they probably made their push in the United States a few years back. And baseball was one of the things. Could be totally <laughs> wrong. Now we're just talking about international commerce. <laughs> so no free ads un, uh, unless we have to talk about it. So what's the answer then? What's the worst company that's going to buy a jersey patch? And will I, I don't think that owners can sell the jersey patch to another company that they own. That feels like straight up money laundering. Right? Like that 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 is money laundering. That's what money laundering is, right? I've yeah. watched enough TV shows to know that that's money laundering. Well, also just that would that be profitable to, to buy but money laundering doesn't have to be profitable, Alex. Just has to hide some of the income. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of money laundering. Jesus Christ. I don't know what the worst company is going to be. Haven't you ever watched Breaking Bad? They buy the car wash. They launder all of the drug money through it. Yeah, there is an owner who watched that show and was like, oh, I didn't think of wow. that. <laughs> Jersey patch. Good idea. So I was Mike's question, what's going to be the worst company or what is going to look the worst? Because I do think there are jerseys on which it may seem more out of place like on 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 white jerseys for example i don't think depending on the the color scheme of the logo i'm not sure it's going to make that much of a difference but i think of some of the more colorful jerseys we have in the league like um like the rockies purple jerseys or the a's kelly green jerseys where if you just have like a big blue logo yeah smack dab on the you know the the shoulder yeah it's gonna look weird i don't know that i can really predict who's gonna be the worst but i can i can name a couple companies that are definitely gonna buy one mm-hmm. roman yeah cores cores yeah feels like cores just has to buy the rockies one <laughs> <laughs> don't you think they have like an obligation right. do they get a deal to do that? that i do think that probably rocket 10 will buy one mm-hmm. squarespace they sponsor the knicks Ooh, okay those would be my predictions. Disney sponsors the Orlando Magic, which I think is cool in the NBA because it actually makes sense. Yeah. Because Disney owns everything in Orlando. Right. Um, but other than that, I, I don't really know. Probably like WB Mason because they're like a huge <laughs> baseball sponsor. But you see WB Mason, you're like, WB Mason, for sure. What do they do, Alex? What does WB Mason do? Are they like shipping? Yes. Shipping logistics. What does that mean? How is that getting from point A to point B? <laughs> I guess. Like, is, don't you just plug it into Google Maps? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the logistics. We saw how important shipping logistics have been in the last two years with the pandemic. Uh, real, this is a real big pod for us just talking about industries of which we have little to no knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, that's how we got good at talking about the baseball industry, which we came in with little to no knowledge. Fair. And now we see, people seem to think that we have a lot of knowledge now. I mean... We're gonna get a crypto sponsorship. Oh yeah, a crypto or yeah. or a God, or, that's a, the answer. or a betting one. FTX probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus. So a betting. I have a question about a betting one. Okay, can they do that? That feels that feels too far. I I don't know. Can they not? <laughs> so like, should they do that? Obviously no. But well, they as in the the league. Yeah. Should the right. teams be allowed? Should they? Should they? allow a betting company 
to literally put something on the literal players who are playing the games? I, I think no. That seems like a recipe for disaster. But then I, I would have to imagine they have some kind of policy about which companies teams are allowed to sell these sponsorships to. And you might think that there would be at least enough a, a separation of church and state still to say, let's at least allow the, the casinos to stay in the outfield <laughs> when you walk in, not on the literal field. Right. For as much as they've done with the broadcast, they've, they've done a lot less on the field with the players themselves. And mm-hmm. I know that the re- most recent CBA expanded what players are allowed to do in terms of accepting money to sponsor you know, sports betting companies and whatnot. But still, I, I would think that the jersey patch itself is at the very least distasteful and at most like potentially corrupt. I mean, yeah, that's that's why it'll it'll happen, right? <laughs> okay. All right. Um I think that crypto is the worst one, Shoops. It's yeah. That's yeah, my answer. Yes, I agree. Very important next question. Probably the most important question we have today comes from Nico. Who is better at baseball, Alex or Bobby? Was that is that present tense or past tense? Like who is better right now? The question says who is better at baseball. Okay. We could do both. Who was better? Who is better now? Tough question. How do you compare cross positions? You know? Right. Well, also, neither of us have ever seen the other play baseball. Well, we saw each other play softball. It's the closest thing that we can get to that. We've also played catch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a great showing for either of us in, in our <laughs> limited time playing catch. Right. We both you know have, have arm injuries for yeah. a week afterwards. Yeah, you know it hurts throwing a baseball. Mm-hmm. I get it. Jacob DeGrom, please don't be in as much pain this year throwing a baseball. Um, I think you're probably a better hitter than me, and I'm probably a better pitcher than you. Yeah. That would be my assessment. Yeah. By, by the time I was like 12... No, probably like 13 or 14. I was like a PO, pitcher only. Yeah, basically. There you go. I played first base every once in a while. Like I would come out of the game and go to first mm-hmm. if we were winning by a lot. But I also didn't wear glasses full time until college, but I definitely needed to wear glasses full time. So I had a really hard time hitting because <laughs> I couldn't really see the ball. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my coach in middle school was like, So you wear glasses in class? <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah. And he's like, that doesn't seem weird to you that you don't need to wear glasses on the field. And I was like, nah, I could see it. Right. But my other sport was basketball. So big orange ball, not that hard to see. <laughs> so I just never went in on like the sports goggles or contacts, which would have been easier. I think I was, I was pretty good in little league. <laughs> Throwing it way back now. Um, I, two guys talking about their little league highlights. Right. Reliving the glory days. Uh, High school was a little more hit or miss. I <laughs> right, raked freshman year. Wow. Raked. Dude, I hit like 350. Wow. What was the OBP though? Probably like 350. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Abysmal sophomore and junior years. What happened? Talk I, to me about it. I, the, the sample size became bigger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, second base, right? Second, second base, yeah. Okay. So you're I, probably, probably, I think I was a uh, I was a pretty good defender, actually. Yeah, you're probably better with the glove than me. Right. I was never much of an infield defender. Mm-hmm. Never much of an outfield defender either. That's why I got moved to the mound. Mm. I could feel the position at pitcher. There you go. You know what I liked? Hmm. Catching. I thought that that was fun in a kind of like weirdly masochistic way. Right. You know, like I'm definitely doing the most work out here. I'm in the most pain. 
<laughs> I'm getting the most bruises out of this deal. Like, it was kind of fun. I mean, you are at the literal center of the action, right? You are involved in effectively every single play. Yeah. So what you're saying is that you're doing an entirely different job than the rest of the players. That's the argument you're making. So what you're saying is that you think that there should be a second DH for the catcher position, just like I've been saying that's the argument that you've been making for years. I don't I don't think I don't know that that's the argument I'm making. You're saying your argument for having a pitcher, a DH for the pitcher is that the pitcher does a different job than everybody else. Right. A harder job. Which is the same thing you're saying about catcher well, right now. Well, I mean, my, my case, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> the case is that pitchers dedicate so much time to their craft that is completely different from everything else on the field that they physically are not able to dedicate time to being a good hitter. Otherwise, they would have to sacrifice some of their... Like, catchers are bad hitters and still hit like 100 points better than pitchers. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, okay, so... Nico, not really a great answer for your question. Depends on what your team needs, I guess. <laughs> Let's do a voicemail now. Okay. Hey, Alex and Bobby. My name's Nick, and I've uh, been a regular listener of the pod for just over a year now. Um, free agency has been really heating up post-lockout. I'm really excited for that. And one thing that I've actually noticed in the past year for me personally, is a change for the better in my, my baseball fandom, more specifically kind of how to separate the player's on-field value with their salary or the, the contract that they sign and being able to treat those things separately. Um, as a bit of background, I'm a Brewers fan, so any mention of Jason Hayward's time with the Cubs used to be a prime invitation for my friends and I to label him as overrated because he was making a lot of money and not really playing well. And in hindsight, that's obviously really stupid. Fans clearly don't have a serious financial stake in player payroll, so Hayward catching all that flack just because the Rickets decided to give him Scrooge McDuck money demonstrates really a lack of understanding of how franchises are run, and obviously just a really weird way to be a fan. Um, so my question for you is this. Uh, can you remember something about your early fandoms, either baseball or otherwise, that changed once you started doing the podcast? Uh, love the show. Keep up the great work, and look forward to hearing your thoughts. This is a tough question. I mean, there definitely are things that we've changed our, or or I guess more so like refined our opinions on. Right. Like there are some really easy answers here just about how we like consume the business of baseball and think about it and talk about it. Yeah. I'll, like I'll say for myself, I barely ever paid attention to things like arbitration. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I didn't really pay attention to payroll all that much, like league-wide payroll. I would obviously pay attention as it affected the New York Mets. And I knew that the Yankees were outspending mostly everybody and the Dodgers were outspending mostly everybody. And I knew that the Rays were spending no money. And that was kind of like the extent to which I cared about this. I never really cared about league-wide trends in that respect. So I guess that would probably be my answer is caring about the like health economically of the sport. Um, but similar to what Nick is describing, I was like, Jason Bay is a waste of money. Yeah. Bobby Bonilla day I like got my jokes off too yeah and and now I'm like that was a waste of time and effort and not <laughs> funny at all <laughs> I remember being like good thing we're paying Oliver Perez all that money to suck <laughs> just excavating all of my worst <laughs> player <laughs> salary takes live on the podcast you never had to worry about that because the A's never actually paid right, anyone right right exactly you don't they have never any skeletons my mind. hidden in your closet I definitely think I changed the way I 
watched players and team or like enjoyed other players and teams, especially when I was younger, it was very much like I'm an A's fan. So I know all the A's players and I see the teams that come to town. I mean, this is all we're talking like pre MLB TV also. So the way that you were actually able to consume the sport was very different. And I think maybe due in part to the way the A's run their franchise, but also just due to the kind of accessibility, relative accessibility of of other teams and players. Yeah. It got me far more interested in like what was going on around the rest of the league and like actually enjoying seeing other teams have success, other players have success. I feel like weirdly, this isn't fair, but like Mike Trout was one of the first non A's players who I was like watching religiously because yeah. like obviously, but that was, it was just kind of like, Oh, why he can't even get his team to the playoffs. Like, why were you watching him? Right. He's, he's over relatable and a bust. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I hear you. I think I had like a personal transformation as to how I, thought about baseball like how seriously analytically i thought about baseball um from like a sabermetric perspective at the same time that we were starting the podcast and that was because i was reading a ton of fan graphs instead of going to class or instead of paying attention in class i was there physically just not mentally right um and i was listening to a ton of effectively wild and and just like having my mind expanded as to what you could actually pay attention to and think was cool in the baseball world rather than just kind of the the intangible things like fandom love the feeling of being at the ballpark like a beer at a game a hot tub like all that stuff has always been really important to me and then i feel like doing the podcast and also just kind of like coming of age at a time where so much baseball media is accessible to us has been able to like add those things into my general love and pleasure for the game as opposed to just like making me into one type of fan or another i feel like we talk about like types of fans or what people like about the game in such a binary way and it's not really always like that and that's what the podcast has kind of proven to me is that we bring on people who are much more analytically focused and talk to them and we can still enjoy that and they can still enjoy being on the podcast and we bring on people who are much more I would say like qualitatively interested in the game versus being quants and that's all fine and that's all good. And that's, that's what makes baseball so rich and beautiful and rewarding to be a fan of. Yeah, I agree. The last thing I'll say is I think I just became far more aware of baseball's culture war. Um, (laughs) and just like the way, (laughs) how do you feel about that? Do you feel good that you're much more aware of the culture war now? I don't, I mean, you're on the front lines, dog. (laughs) I think I just, I started to, you start to realize, and this is just like a part of getting older and learning about the world is like sports doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? You see how intertwined it is with the rest of society and how it's how, you know, our, our world's worst inclinations are fed into the sport and vice versa. Uh, Yeah. I don't know if that's a, if that's a good or, or bad thing for my fandom. It's broken my brain a little bit. Well, we actually got a question about that. How how do you deal with the fact that your brain has been broken from talking about baseball or looking at baseball or analyzing baseball in this way? So let's let's go to our next question. Hey guys, 
Um, it's me, Jamie, again. Uh, I call a lot, but uh, because I love you guys. Uh, I just wanted to – I was having some thoughts, and, uh, you know, I just got back from uh, broadcasting a high school baseball game. So, reminder that baseball is alive and well and awesome out of the hands of greedy billionaires. Um, but I was just thinking about how, you know, I've kind of, you know, honestly disengaged a little bit from the podcast recently um, because I've just been so desensitized to all these horrible things that are happening in the negotiations right now. I mean, I I feel like it's kind of the same as, you know, the way I treat, you know, climate change. It's this horrible thing that is pissing me off so much, this ignorance from people in power. And like, I just have to check out for my own sanity. And I mean, I was just wondering if you guys kind of like feel a need to stay in it, you know, as people who do this podcast and stuff. But I mean, I love you guys for, you know, continuing on with that and respect you so much for it. But I, it's, it's really hard for me. So I was just wondering kind of your, your thoughts on that. Thanks guys. How do you avoid nihilism, Alex, in all aspects of your life? I think that we've probably slipped into baseball nihilism at moments where... At moments? Yeah, but honestly, though, I don't feel like we're that... We don't, like, fear monger about how baseball is dead and ruined and we can never make it better, you know? Like, one of the most frustrating things for me personally is like discourse without solution oriented conversation in it. It's like we can have discourse all of the time about how or why baseball is being ruined by billionaires. But then also every once in a while, we need to like reground ourselves and talk about what would it look like without those people. And I think that we've done a pretty decent job enough so that I don't feel the sensation that Jamie is feeling every time we get in front of the microphones to do this podcast. But obviously, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth all the time. In a in a kind of like, I guess I just have to shrug and be cynical way. That there's like, fifteen moments for me like that every week. You know, when it comes to baseball, and we make jokes about like twelve of those moments, and then there are three moments where I'm like, oh, I don't even feel like making a joke about this. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, like our passion for talking about the things that are wrong in the baseball world only exists because we actually love the sport and the community and the good aspects of it so much. And so if I can, at the end of a long podcast where I I like feel like I'm just throwing my hands up a lot, if I can finally like reorient myself to that, I, it feels more cathartic than crushing. Um, And it's interesting that he compares it to climate change because I also feel that way about climate change. And then I hear, I hear people who dedicate their lives to studying climate change or to climate activism. I hear people be like, you have to resist that urge, you know, to just throw your hands up and feel nihilistic about it because there are still things that we can do. And then I feel like I have to be that person for baseball. You know, you have to resist the urge to just completely give up. But I don't blame anybody who feels that to the point where they are pushed away from the sport. Like the, like the, the greedy billionaires who run the game have done their, their part in pushing away as many people as they can. Yeah. 
I I mean, I find it exhausting to consume the sport a lot. And again, it it extends beyond just baseball to other, you know, like just living under late capitalism. <laughs> yeah, we've had practice elsewhere. Right. I just, it is really hard not to, like I, like I feel like my emotions to some extent get sort of flattened where I'm like, I don't actually have a intelligent way to think about this thing. I'm just like, wow, fucking normal world, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're just going to gut the team for parts. Sure. And I think if anything, you know, doing this podcast is a good exercise for me of like trying to push beyond that for all the times that we just kind of throw our hands up in the air on this podcast, which I think we do a fair amount of. I think I get reinvigorated by seeing the communities of fans out there who really give a shit about their team, about their their fan base, about their city. And this extends to minor league teams and cities almost maybe more intently, right? Seeing how many people have like cared and checked in about the state of minor league players over the last couple of years has been really like when things feel really bleak about this sport, which is most of the time, knowing that there are millions of people out there who see this as an issue that needs to be rectified and talked about is heartening. That's why doing the t-shirts and donating the proceeds to, to more than baseball has been, I feel like a really fun exercise, a really fun project for us Yeah, because it, it has because it has allowed us to connect with fans in a way that I think we probably wouldn't otherwise, right? There's kind of a shared sense of value and responsibility almost as consumers of the sport to say, hey, maybe there's a better way. Yeah, I think, so there are so many things and systems in our world, baseball being just one of them, that are completely stacked against everybody except capital. As you said, like, so many aspects of late capitalism we've had practice with dealing with this kind of thing. And I just think you have to pick and choose the things that you want to hold space in still, because it's, it's much harder than it should be to like actually hold space and affect change in different parts of the world. And you have to choose the things that you're not going to let them ruin for you. Some of the best things in the world are commoditized and commercialized and frankly co-opted for profit by like the worst people in our country and a lot of the things that i love are on that list like if you think about i like going to museums i'm not like an art history buff or anything like that but i like the feeling of going to museum and seeing art and the whatever it makes me like evoke and like being in that space the art world is not doing great like the art world is not helping out most people that it should. You want to talk mon- money laundering. Exactly. On the timeline that it should. But does that mean that I shouldn't like enjoy going to a museum? No. And and baseball is the same way. Like those are those guys are artists, <laughs> not for the purposes of being excluded from being considered workers, but what they do is what baseball players do at a high level or even at a low level. Like the game is art to me. And so 
there are some things that you just, though they have been commoditized and co-opted, that you have to remove yourself from that that worldview sometimes and just appreciate them for what they are, even though you have to like buy into it at a certain financial level to access it. I mean, until we change a lot of things about society, you're not going to be able to change that about baseball. So I think that we should just enjoy baseball in the interim. Well put. Thank you. Um, let people enjoy things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let people enjoy things. I think we need to remind ourselves of that from time to time. Like you and I? Or or like what, we I, as a society? No, I think that like me personally, like for all the the frustrations and, and venting that we do here, I think sometimes I need to remind myself to take a step back and be like, damn, this is just a sport. Yeah, that, like we can enjoy. Also. Some people just like the Rays, right? <laughs> Some and people like, think they're doing a good job. Yeah, and maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Like maybe <laughs> you don't like. I don't know. I feel this way about again so many issues where you you know healthcare. You get really frustrated, and I I don't really have a s- solution because I'm I think I'm pretty dumb, but I just <laughs> I just think we should all have it, you know. Yeah. And like, I think our sport should be, should be better. But, but if, if you think your sport is doing okay or your team is doing okay, that's fine. I'm not mad about it. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like, if people are already happy with baseball, that's fine. In that case, I think you'll still be happy with baseball once it's better. Yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. And like, but we need to make space to not be mad at those people. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, we got a couple team specific questions. You want to do some Phillies questions real quick? Sure. Uh, breathe in orange fire asks, how much joy can we have in a good conscience looking at the Phillies outfield defense numbers this season? <laughs> I believe breathe in orange fire, according to their profile photo is an Astros fan. So they're saying, how much can we laugh at the Phillies defense? Just, just as a primer for the listeners. That outfield will feature Nick Castellanos, Adubel Herrera, and Kyle Schwarber, Kyle Schwarber, and Bryce Harper. Four less than stellar defenders. And then their infield will supposedly have Reese Hoskins and Alec Bohm and D.D. Gregorius. They're, they're not great defenders either at this point in their careers. So <laughs> how much before it becomes bad-natured laughing at how bad a team's defense is? Uh, you know, the chances that you're going to see incredibly awful defensive displays on a regular basis i think is maybe not as high as one would think you know yeah. defense is the kind of thing that i think plays out over a larger sample over a larger sample size and and the kind of thing that maybe you can't even always see with your eye right yeah. where a, a guy misses catching a fly ball because he maybe doesn't have the range but and maybe sometimes you say oh a better defender gets that or maybe you're just kind of like dude hit the shit out of the ball and it went to the wall like what are you gonna do you know yeah um i think it's funny that the phillies are just not caring about defense like i wouldn't think if it was funny if i was a fan of that team mm-hmm. as i have not found it funny that the mets have not yes, cared about exactly, defense yeah. for the better part of the last two decades but there is a break-even point where if you have good enough offense it actually doesn't matter and you know kyle Schwarber playing left field for the cubs team that won the world series or for the Cubs team that just missed going to the World Series in 2015, he was basically the physical embodiment of that break-even point. 
So to to widen the scope and do that for an entire team, I think is at least interesting. Like if we only have teams saying we we want light hitting defensive outfielders because we're afraid of what it will do for our team UZR. Like that that gets pretty boring on a league wide basis. Some Kyle Schwarber is good enough that he should be paid a lot of money to hit very well for a team. Right. And same with Nick Castellanos. So we got another question about what do you think of the Castellanos signing? I think I'm going to not enjoy watching him hit against right. my yeah, team 17 yeah. times this year. That's what I think about that. Yeah, the Phillies are, man, the Phillies are so weird. I, I never know how to judge them. It's made even more complicated by the fact that Dave Dombrowski is their GM. Right. And yet they still haven't really made the huge trade. Yeah. That he is known for, I guess, because they don't really have the prospects to do it the way that the Red Sox did. Right. Yeah. I think you may not enjoy enjoy watching them, but Nick Castellanos is good. I'm worried for the like cultural events that him being on the Phillies is going to cause. Like right. the, the cauldron of Mets nonsense and Nick Castellanos's power. Right. They're on a collision course. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> I, like that's that's a lot of explosive material in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, the Castellanos signing is like it strikes me as the kind of thing that is. That is actually maybe indicative that the sport is not totally broken, that free agency is not completely broken. Now, do I think that the Phillies should use that as an excuse not to go like sign good bullpen pieces? No. Or or sign someone who can start a game that is not Vince Velasquez if he's still starting games for them. I know that's a sore subject for Philadelphia fans. But no, I don't think that. I think that the Phillies should be spending up to luxury tax because they play in a big market and have had enough successful runs that they should have enough money and the coffers but he castellanos is not a perfect player he's a player who does a couple things really well you know like slugging extra base hits he has a good arm but he's the kind of guy that teams have talked themselves out of signing for five years 100 million dollars right and that he got that contract is like a, a a good indicator that Maybe there are a few teams who are not totally out on spending money on good players. Yeah, he is kind of the anti-moneyball type of player, right? Where he's not necessarily a great defender. He doesn't walk at above average rates or anything no. like that. He just hits. He just he just hits. You know what he does? He gets hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. I think it's cool that teams actually are still willing to kind of reward that, play in that pool a little bit. It's going to be insufferable if he like has a a down year, I and I think it's it's really unfortunate that anytime this kind of thing happens, where I you know I manage to find a little joy in a piece of news, I'm like, how's this going to get fucked up for me? <laughs> the galaxy brain that's going to be going on in that outfield between Bryce Harper's beautiful mind I and know. Nick Castellanos. Oh my gosh. <laughs> existentialism is going to be really special stuff <laughs> i'm looking forward to that if nothing else um all right we we're running short on time here so i'm just gonna bang through a couple of these that we got we got we got a question from shrimp factory shrimp factory alex thank you for writing in shrimp factory um given how collective bargaining tax conscious the red sox have been as of late and signed the fact that they signed trevor story what are the chances of keeping both rafael devers and xander bogarts i think pretty low Pretty low based on ownership priority, though that is a false binary to have to choose between those two. And I think that the Red Sox and Heim could, to me, it would be surprising if they chose to sign Story instead of 
re-sign Bogarts. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like that feels like an unforced error if ultimately you don't plan on going over the competitive balance tax for a couple years in order to keep all three of those players. You already got rid of Mookie Betts. So what was that for if you can't keep Bogarts and Devers? Right. Like ostensibly when you traded Mookie, it was because a couple guy a bunch of guys were going to be coming up soon and you needed the space to keep those guys. So then to go out and sign Trevor Story wouldn't make a ton of sense. It's like when the Thunder traded James Harden and then spent even more money than it would have kept than it would have cost to keep James Harden just because they felt bad about trading James Harden and right. him turning into a really great player. Like they don't need to do this kind of roulette through players. No, they didn't that, I mean, need to no, sign story. Right, exactly. So though it's cool that they did, especially if they are going to go over to the competitive balance tax now. Yeah. We also we got a question from um Matthew who wrote in to say how fun is it that the Twins traded for Gary Sanchez and now have to go immediately to an arbitration hearing to explain how he sucks as a way to suppress his salary? <laughs> he hasn't even played for them yet. The first thing to welcome in the, him in the door is a arbitration hearing. Right. How much How much of the Yankees' work are you allowed to just plagiarize? Right. Like, can you go to them and be like, so we know you were already thinking about this. You've been through this before. <laughs> Why don't we just switch out, you know, command F command replace right all of the stuff that says yankees and we'll put twins there yeah or do you just pull up phil mushnick's archive true he's kind of done a lot of the the work for you exactly um we got a question from chip who says my favorite thing that happens in moneyball is brad pitt eating day-old popcorn out of a coffee filter while trading for ricardo rincon what snack would you guys want to eat out of coffee out of a coffee filter watching baseball this year Just an absurd question. Thanks, Chip. You're the best. Um, My go-to snack during baseball games is sunflower seeds. Does that mean you need two filters? One to hold the seeds and one to hold the the shells? Yeah. Yep. It does. Um, Unless I'm outside, in which you can just... In which case, you can just put the seeds on the ground. That's true. Yeah. Uh, What is your go-to baseball snack? My go-to baseball snack... Like, if I'm, like, watching a baseball game especially at the park is popcorn. I will do like popcorn. Yeah. I don't make popcorn at home every time I watch a baseball game. Although maybe that should change. (laughs) I don't think you need that. (laughs) That's a lot of butter. You watch a lot of baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I think the funniest part of this chip is right. Is that he's eating it out of a a coffee filter, a day old Mm -hmm. coffee filter. It's just a nice little packaged image of what, Billy Bean is who he is and what he believes. <laughs> Who's the day old coffee filter of the Oakland A's? Um, all right, let's close it out with two voicemails, Alex. Hi, guys. First time, long time. This is Alex. For the pod, I'm really thinking a lot about the idea of expansion and how the idea of this current group of 30 owners willingly choosing to split up all of their pots an additional two ways kind of fundamentally goes against the way that they've acted and it's kind of leading me to believe that they wouldn't want to expand anytime soon which is what makes the Oakland and Tampa Bay situations so convenient for them to kind of cover up. I believe this is the longest period of time that baseball has gone without expanding basically since the first expansion and you would think it would be a move that they should do and the expansion fee would obviously be enormous, but over the long run, it would obviously, I think, 
very quickly, in fact, become a financial detriment to keep splitting whatever pots they get an additional two cuts worth to 132nd instead of 130th. I would love your guys' thoughts on kind of how much you think expansion actually seems likely, if at all, because I'm starting to think it's not likely whatsoever. Thanks. This is, I mean, this is a good question. It's obviously the devil's in the details here. Like, it depends how much each team would have to pay in, like, an entrance fee and how much the owners would prioritize, like, the immediate financial gain and what they could then do with that money, like how they would reinvest it into, you know, a new stadium or, you know, like a new streaming service platform that they could then resell for $4 billion in the future like they did with um, MLB Advanced Media. That It's all about short-term versus long-term gains. And I actually think I would push back a little bit on Alex's question and say, I think MLB owners have given up long-term profits for the sake of short-term gains. I would argue that it would be better for the sport to take short-term hits on something so that you could, some things like, you know, RSN money so that you could get better access or ticket prices so that, so that people could have better access to your sport. So in the long run, they'd be lifelong paying customers as opposed to just people who tap out after three years. And so I think that that is an example of them putting short-term gains in front of long-term profits which expansion, they would get huge checks right away. And even though they would be splitting it 32 ways instead of 30, you have to think that they will expand into larger markets. And so then those larger markets will then become revenue-sharing payers versus revenue-sharing receivers as it's outlined, as the revenue-sharing system is outlined in the collective bargaining agreement. So I, I don't think that there is any like big financial roadblock to them expanding. I think it's just in terms of like creativity and actually getting it done. Yeah, and like the desire to do it because it's a lot of work, and I don't know how much the power brokers of baseball want to put that work in to actually make it work, work out in the long term, and make those viable markets remain viable. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time they procrastinated on uh, on getting a job done for the good of the sport. <laughs> um, and and obviously, you add two more teams to the mix, that means that your broadcasting deals are in theory going to go up there's going to be more money that is coming into the sport as a result because you have two more markets that are in play yeah two more markets where you're selling where you're selling jerseys exactly. two more markets where you're getting rsn deals two more markets where you're bullying local governments into sending you tax rebates to yeah. build stadiums right. like a lot of all of that stuff that makes each individual market profitable now will then be the same for those two new markets right maybe exactly. even more so in the case of somewhere like las vegas who are just dying to have more sports teams and they're willing to compromise like most of their ethics to do so mm -hmm. yeah so i would it hurt in the long term i mean maybe but not noticeably yeah i think it's it's hard to say because it, if those two new teams become like bad faith actors and now you have two more teams like monkeying with service time, like, yeah, it could hurt. But then at the same time, like you now have two more teams that could potentially be interested in free agents. And, you know, like there's a whole litany of things that would change. And I don't know how much we can address them until we know like what the markets would be and right. how, it, how the expansion would actually be formalized. Right. Who the billionaires would actually be. And you would think that they would want to court more folks who are, Splashy. 
who are splashy, the Steve Cohen types. Although I, I maybe not, maybe not Jerry Reinsdorf. Right, exactly. <laughs> like we did this wrong once. Now you could, <laughs> you guys should listen to me then. All right, let's let's do one final voicemail real quick. Hey there, guys. So my cousin's boyfriend is a low-level minor leaguer in the Washington system. Nice guy. I've met him a couple of times, and I expect to see him at an upcoming family wedding. So I'm looking for advice of how I can bend his ear and give him something encouraging, some encouraging uh, or warm feelings toward the Players Association side of things, which, of course, he should be so lucky to join that association someday uh, and play in the big leagues. And I don't want him to be afraid about how the lockout is imperiling his livelihood and this whole thing is such a mess. And what could I say to this kid to uh, get him thinking about his value and uh, sticking to his guns during the lockout? Thanks. This is a this is a really interesting question. I thought, like, yeah, because so often we talk about these groups of people as monoliths, but. As we've discussed with the MLB Players Association, the minor leagues are made up of people who all have different opinions about how things should work. I don't think that there's probably a predominant view that the minor league system is messed up and that you're getting ripped off. But like we've talked about with, you know, with Harry Marino, for example, in the past, not every minor leaguer has the bandwidth to think about that that on an active basis while they're trying to, you know, hit higher than the Mendoza line. Right. They're often well aware of it, right? Like most minor leaguers are aware of the conditions in which they play and that <laughs> how much they're being exploited. Right, exactly. But right, um, many of them don't just, like you said, don't have the bandwidth to actually do like get angry about that, which I, yeah. I get. I think uh, how I would approach it would be, and I apologize that it's taken us so long to answer this question. We've just been obviously bombarded with news and a bunch of lockout stuff. Um, so obviously the listeners heard that this question came in before the lockout, but even now that it's over, I don't think that it really changes the approach that I would have to discussing this, to discussing something like this with someone who's in the minor leagues. The The approach that I would take would just be like to talk about how much I love baseball, you know, and, and to try to relate to this person about their love for the sport. And the like collective societal value that even something like minor league baseball has to a person like me. And then, and then have that be sort of like the setting off point from, from which you start to discuss like, yeah. And it's pretty, it's pretty messed up. They're trying to like monkey around with how many teams there are and how many minor league players they're going to retain on a roster. And obviously it's messed up how little you guys get paid, like that kind of thing. But, but I wouldn't go into it being like, Hey, are you ready to burn down the house? Because I think most people, it's actually not really that productive for them to think like in the moment how crushing their exploitation is. Because then then it's like, what can you even do yeah. about it? That would be my approach. Yeah, I agree. I would just want to hear about his experiences on like a human level. As you said, we we talk very broadly about the state of the minor leagues and the the poor conditions but these things vary so much from 
player to player from team to team, league to league, that my guess is while every player by and large experiences a lot of the same contours of the minor leagues, I think they probably all experience those things in different ways and are impacted by them, you know, on a uniquely human level, right? So this guy might not be sleeping on a floor with seven other guys in a room and also, you know, has has PB&Js for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day and also is spending 12 hours on a bus every day. I mean, maybe maybe he has all these things, in, yeah. w- in which case, like, here's your poster boy for the state of the minor <laughs> leagues. Yeah. Um, but I think if you can relate on that human level, it becomes far more, it becomes far easier to actually open the door to that sort of encouragement. It's also a good way to find out, like, politically how you, how he feels about that, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Like, has anyone approached you about a minor league union? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, the answer to all of this might be, yeah, sucks, but like, it is what it is. That's, that's the deal, right? This is what you sign up to do. In which case we maybe have a little more work to do. Yeah. We have a lot more work to do. I think that you're right. You're right. That's like relate to someone on a human level is never bad advice. Um, Let's wrap it here, Alex. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, just a quick reminder that you can buy Unionized and Miners sh- shirts um, and more Tipping Pitches merch for the proceeds to be donated to More Than Baseball, which will help said minor leaguers. You can follow us on Twitter, tipping underscore pitches. You can email us, tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. You can call in with your own voicemails and questions, 785-422-5881. Not sure... I think over the next couple of weeks, our schedule might shift slightly because I have a lot of travel responsibilities. Um, but we will be doing the all gift draft again, as we do every year. So prepare yourselves for that. And we'll be opening communication about when the episodes are not coming out on Monday. Anything else, Alex? Uh, I guess keep your eyes peeled for tipping pitches, trench coats. Oh, yeah. We have... We've already been Mushnick emblem right, right over the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's it. Should we let the listeners get out of here? We should. We should let ourselves get out of here. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya. This ad has a 504 gateway timeout. This pop-up ad (laughs) on this article. All right, here we go.